One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Unheard. I hope you've had a very Merry Christmas. Before we enter 2024, we thought we'd take a look back at the last year at some of the videos and events that we've done here at Unheard. We've decked the studio out appropriately Christmassy with some uh, pine and we've got also live, candle. <laughs> live candles. Don't, Don't tell the health and safety officer. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and we've also got Unheard's Volume One, which is Volume One of a annual paper edition, which means you can read Unheard on print, which, which is Which you can quite actually nice. buy at shop.unheard.com. A little so plug for you. So go and check it out. A little bit of a plug. It's been a big year. It's been a big year in the world. Obviously quite a worrying year in a lot of respects. Uh, worldwide, there's been a lot going on in the news. But for Unheard, it's actually been a great year. It has. Uh, this has been the first year where we've actually had our own proper home. We've had our own premises. We did this weird thing of opening a restaurant and a club attached to a digital publication. I'm not sure anyone's ever done that before, but it worked. It's full, people seem to like it, our events are sold out. So if you want to come in 2024, we're gonna have an amazing program. Definitely check it out, unheard.com, and you can sign up there. And as soon as you're a member, we'll invite you to events. And if you can't make it, if you're in the US or if you're elsewhere, you can live join the live stream and join us remotely. So definitely check that out. Let's have a look back at some of our hits. Yeah, let's have some nostalgia. It's that time of year. Probably good to have a look back. Right to the beginning of 2023 in January when we had Coleman Hughes, our first guest at the Unheard Club. It is hard for me to think of um, a significant good consequence just for black Americans that came from BLM. Now, I can very easily give you the opposite. I can very easily give you a harm, which was, and this is not only on BLM, it's just the wider atmosphere of the riots and the apologism for them, um, which is, in America, you saw the, the, the greatest single year-over-year -year increase in homicide. And that was not born equally between racial groups. It, was, it fell squarely disproportionately on black people and black men in particular. So you saw the largest single percentage year increase in homicide of black men. You saw um, crime spike in locations. You saw black-owned businesses being looted and destroyed and therefore, you know, property values lowered, places becoming basically uninhabitable. Um, so I would challenge anyone to come up with a comparable benefit that was experienced by black people as a result of the 2020 BLM moment. Not the tourists that starts to the year. No, but in a way, I mean, Coleman Hughes is so eloquent. 
I find, and he talks about these incredibly controversial topics with such forensic clarity and just always referring to the evidence, and it kind of takes the heat out of them. And for him to say that he can't think of a single positive benefit of BLM three, four years later is really just such a devastating conclusion considering how many people were so excited about it. It was this great movement that was going world to... World-defining moment. Yeah. But now sitting at the end of 2023, I do think the discourse has shifted. That felt quite radical at the beginning of 23 to be admitting on Coleman's part that he saw no benefit to it. But now, given the revelations about figures like Ibram X. Kendi, use of the BLM funds from the donations that millions of Americans and people across the world gave, I don't know, I think maybe the tide has turned. I think if you mention Black Lives Matter and that moment to people now, a lot more people would turn around and say that they have reservations about it, whereas a year ago, I'm not sure that would have been the case. Let's have a look at the next one. February, Brett Easton Ellis on Gen X. I think part of the reason why Gen X uh, is the most conservative of the generations, much more than boomers, much more than millennials, is that we had the most freedom. Mm. We looked to be shocked. We wanted to be offended. We looked, we loved dirty jokes. We loved, you know, music that, you know, I I don't know if anyone watched the rather bad Woodstock uh, 99 movie that was on HBO. But it really was there, this notion of racism and sexism everywhere was just not a, around. And you, you just had, you know, um, a black artist like DMX was singing these songs and, uh, you know, a million white kids are singing the N-word along with these, with these songs that they love. You know, it, it really, it, it wasn't turned into some sort of like weird victim racist ideology. It was just sort of like about art and free expression and people saying things. It hadn't been redefined into this thing where you can't say this, you can't write this, you have to walk on eggshells. The world has to be childproof and you have to think like the better people or whatever. I didn't experience that. So I think part of the reason why Gen X is, I don't know, 10 to 12 points more conservative in the polls that I've read in the US is precisely because of this reaction against this kind of authoritarian, you know, language, you know, whatever. It's, it's this, that's what white was about. White was not a defense of Trump and white was not an attack on liberalism. I was a liberal, what are you talking about? It just so happens that the culture had moved so far over to this other side that I guess I wasn't anymore. I don't know. So, so, that, you, so that's what White was about. And, and White was written in a very heated moment in 2019. I would never write that book now. That was an amazing event. That was when we had Brett Easton Ellis downstairs in the club. It was one of the earliest uh, visiting dignitaries we had. It was exciting. And we had quite a Gen X audience in that event. Very Gen X audience. They were really getting into it. There was this real sense of, like, yeah, we we had it better. Gen X solidarity. Yeah. <laughs> Life was more fun. That, that was kind of interesting. February, Fiona Hill on what Trump got right. What would have happened with Trump is Trump would have likely, you know, kind of basically negotiated. So, I mean, he, Trump always said Ukraine didn't matter. That's what happened in that first impeachment trial. Uh, basically, Trump had made it very clear that Ukraine didn't matter to him one little bit, that national security didn't matter. And this was all just about personal favours and Ukraine was just a plaything. And so, you know, the assumption from Putin was, 
or, or would have been with Trump that he could have, you know, got hold of. He would have done it over a handshake and a. And a well, or, or just Nova without much of, you know, none of this would have been necessary, basically. Now, there, there is one element, however, that, you know, Trump was somewhat un unpredictable. And if it had looked like Trump was being humiliated in some way uh, by Putin, then, you know, there might have been, you know, some other, you know, more mercurial reaction. You know, if you think about, you know, Trump was the one who actually did shell Syria, um, send missiles over Syria, where, you know, Obama hadn't done that before. Under Trump, you know, there were the missiles um, given to Ukraine that, you know, they weren't under Obama. Trump could be, you know, quite complicated on some of these issues. I mean, now we're looking down potentially the barrel of a Trump presidency. This question is only going to become more relevant. If the Ukraine war is still happening next year when we have an election, would Trump actually do what Fiona Hill says and, and basically end it on day one? It could be a massive win for him in 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 the kind of terms of whether or not you're a war considered a warmongering president or not. It's kind of amazing that she was so kind about him as well. I think yes. uh, you know Fiona Hill is famous for being a, an anti-Trump person, I and mean, she testified against him in Congress. She's merely made her name for criticizing him, uh, even though she actually worked in his administration. But there she was saying that on foreign policy terms, and quite a few people say that, if you're looking for nice things to say about Donald Trump, the foreign policy record is, is pretty good. Abraham Accords, no wars, these are the points. Even North Korea, some people say that he was quite effective in. So actually, if there is a Trump too. And if the next year is going to be defined by war on multiple fronts, potentially with an additional war with China, then... Could be a selling point for him. Could be a selling wow, point. Wow, we're going to get in trouble for that. Let's see the next one. <laughs> February, the Ukraine debate with Peter Hitchens and Konstantin Kissin. Neither of, of uh, our esteemed opposition have answered the question of what should be done. And Thomas says... I have. I just absolutely did not answer it at I did. All. I said the peoples of, the West, of, of, of Western Europe and North America should combine. Uh, to, to press their democratically elected leaders to end this foolish policy. How? How? By, by the forces which are available in a law-governed democratic country, or public opinion and organization. How would you end the war? That's how I would do it. How, how would I end the war? I would, I would put, put, put pressure on the United States and Russia, who are the principal participants, to make peace. How? But, that, but by, as I say, particularly, it, 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 it's my belief, you, you keep but asking. How do they make Thank peace? Thank you for keeping asking, because I can, I can expand on it. In the United States, where support for this war is already diminishing in, 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 the, in the American public, with good reason, in the United States, once it becomes clear that the people are not interested in continuing, then the politicians in Washington, D.C. Will, will also lose, lose interest, and so will the White House. And, do what? and when the, when the, when, once the Americans have ceased, have ceased to believe that there is any point in, in domestic policy in pursuing this war, the war will end. The war is kept going by fun, fundamentally. By, by, by the method by which the Vietnam War was ended. I'm sorry you're so young, but it is possible for people in okay. democratic countries to organize against wars and bring them you to an end. It has happened okay. in our lifetime. I feel that it's, it's a terrible advert for my chairing skills. It did look one. a bit like a dinner party <laughs> from hell. <laughs> Whoever chose that exact moment was really not doing me That's any favors. Me looking just slightly sort of rabbit in the headlights, scared of was this entirely male panel got more and more loud. Uh, I do feel, though, looking back, that Peter does deserve some credit there because it already feels like the US is changing its tune. And I think Constantine has updated his view of that conflict since February. So as quite often with Peter Hitchens, he presents himself in quite a forceful way. Often a lot of people react strongly against him. And then he 
quite often turns out to be right. March, Lionel Shriver on sensitivity readers. The few of you who aren't familiar with the concept, sensitivity readers uh, started out uh, being hired mostly in young adult fiction, which has been a genre that for some reason woke out earlier than anyone else. They were ahead of their time. Some authors have hired these people themselves, and more fr frequently, lately, it's the publisher who hires the sensitivity reader. And sometimes there are multiple sensitivity readers for the same manuscript. And the idea is that uh, these people are self-nominated experts on whatever category of humanity they happen to have been born into. So I'm a professional American and a professional white person. Um, and they're supposed to go through line by line and find anything in this book that could possibly offend anyone, especially their hallowed group. Uh, and unsurprisingly, uh, that results in a much more um, anodyne, boring manuscript. Uh, the, one of the ironies of the kind of offense that sensitivity readers are on the lookout is that basically you can't win because um, if you have a character do something that most people in that category wouldn't do, uh, then then it's inauthentic. But if they do things that that, that category of people are renowned to do, then it's a stereotype. So basically, you're you're done from the get-go. Apart from it looking a little bit like Lionel's hair was on fire on that uh, clip, it reminds me how incredibly direct she is and how great that is for the audience. We also did an event with her in New York City and there was a guy in the audience who was writing a negative profile about Unheard for The Guardian. He was there to find either we were going to be outrageously uh, like outside acceptable politics or we were going to be conspiracy theorists or we were going to say something unacceptable. And I was really just praying, Lionel, just, just don't get us into too much trouble here. And the very first thing she said <laughs> was literally her first statement to the audience was, I have a confession to make. I want the president to die. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone, I just thought, okay. It's going to be one of those kind of... Not uh, helpful when there's someone one of those trying to do a hit piece in the audience, but... But they loved it. Great for a crowd. <laughs> March, Arvi Loeb on extraterrestrial life. The rubber seemed to really hit the road when you used this word artificial, because, of course, you were stepping outside the bounds of what the rest of the scientific community was saying, which is that Oumuamua was probably organic in nature. And you were suggesting or inferring that it might have been designed. T tell me more about why you might think that. Well, if it was pushed by reflecting sunlight, it has to be very thin. And uh, nature doesn't make uh, sails uh, that are propelled by reflecting light. And uh, in fact, the same telescope in Hawaii, PANSTARS, discovered another object uh, called 2020 SO, three years later in September 2020, which uh, exhibited the same qualities as Oumuamua. It was pushed away from the sun by reflecting sunlight and it had no cometary tail. And within a few weeks, the astronomers realized it's actually a rocket booster that was launched in 1966 by NASA as part of a lunar lander mission. And uh, obviously it was made of stainless steel, so it didn't evaporate. And moreover, it had thin walls and that's why it was pushed away by reflecting sunlight. And uh, here is an example of an object we know is artificial because we made it. The question is, 
who made Oumuamua. If there was a theme to 2023 in the world of the supernatural, it probably was aliens. Yes. It was what everyone became obsessed with, UFOs, and there have been Senate hearings on the topic, whistleblowers coming out. A subject up close to your heart. Very close to my heart. Um, I, have, I have hope. <laughs> so where do you as, come down, Flo? Let's, let's do a little mini interview here. As does Arvi, I think. At the end of 2023, do you believe that aliens have visited Earth? I think they have not visited Earth, oh. but I think they exist. That's a bit boring, Everyone, isn't it? Everyone, I think most people think they statistically exist somewhere in the cosmos. Do you think so? Maybe I think maybe they've got closer than we so think. So you don't believe all of the, the remains that I believe found, that the things that are being stuff. found, I agree with Arvi, I think they're probably offshoots of some sort of craft or whatever that is. So that's, I think, quite conspiratorial, maybe pleasing to people. Um, so you think when, alien crafts have possibly visited? UFOs, yes. Oh. Whether or not they're on there, it's another story. <laughs> That's something. <laughs> That's one for 2024. April, Nick Cave on his fascination with Christ and the devil. There's a sense yeah. in, in when you write about it that it almost it created almost like an altered state of consciousness. The, the, the intenseness of that grief and some of the people writing in who've suffered grief as well um, to the Red Hand Files also talk about that. And it... You know, if, we, if we're talking about the, kind of the, the rational world, the world of normal, mechanistic existence, it kind of threw you into yeah, another I, dimension. I think that, that grief um, destroys... Uh, what it did for me, it, de it destroyed the... the that I just, the world just didn't make sense anymore. It didn't make rational sense to me, and I, I didn't see why I needed to sort of cleave to rational notions about things when it just didn't make any sense and other things made more sense to me especially early on and and they were the those feelings of um a kind of connection with the otherness of things and the divinity of things and so if we're talking about biggest discoveries of 2023 i would definitely put nick cave up there certainly that was a great event we did with him it was kind of his first big talking outside culture, outside his own book, venturing into a bit more of a political conversation. And he did it really well. But we've also been lucky enough to hang out with him a bunch since then. And I think he's a great guy. Yeah, I mean, no bad word to say. I think that clip says it all. And it's astonishing that someone like him should have to come out and say, I, I'm, I'm a spiritual or I'm someone who has belief beyond the material world, considering he's, a, he's an artist. It's what we always used to consider artists. People, you know, think about Blake. It's someone who transcends the material, and yet mm. it felt special. Transgressive. Transgressive. It felt punk and radical for him to say it. So that was a great moment for us. April, Jacob Siegel on the information hoax. Trump was a, a strange, wild man who did some um, kind of weird and uh, did things in 2015 and 2016 that caused people real alarm. And um, that had the effect of basically pulling together all of the different branches of the US elite. So these branches that might have had implicit affinities, but were not acting in a coordinated way prior to Trump, because Trump was seen as the great unholy, demonic threat to all of civilization, 
brought Wall Street together with Facebook employees, together with the NGOs, together with the CIA and the FBI. And you had this coordinated campaign by the elite institutions in America to delegitimate Donald Trump and the mechanisms that they used for this. You you talked about this tendency towards a kind of tribal factionalism and, and fighting when we lose trust in society. And that can be bad enough. But in this case, what happened was uh, essentially, you know, not all of, but virtually all of the federal bureaucracies together with the other elite institutions who control the sense-making apparatus in America, they all got in on this conspiracy. And the conspiracy was to portray Donald Trump as a stooge of Vladimir Putin and to suggest that um, you know his election was illegitimate and that he was one day he was a fascist, the next day he was a Putin agent. They were used sort of interchangeably. And then disinformation entered the picture at the end of Barack Obama's term in office. And the last thing Barack Obama did was to sign uh, through the NDAA, essentially the defense bill, to sign the Countering Foreign Disinformation Act, which uh, created this agency, the Global Engagement Center in the State Department, and fully committed the U.S. political class and the U.S. government to a counter disinformation campaign, which was really always in spirit and very quickly in practice as well, an information war directed against the American people. I mean, that I think that can't be said often enough. It feels old hat to talk about Donald Trump, but actually, as you mentioned, he may well be coming back. The fact that the reaction to him was potentially worse than the original problem. It's just very, it's not very widely understood. And I don't think you need to be a Trump fan to observe that. You don't even need to be a Republican to observe that. It just seems pretty obviously true that a bit like they used to say about COVID, that the body's reaction to a virus can be more dangerous than the pathogen itself. That's what happened with Donald Trump. The, the, all of these different parts of the elite were so freaked out and destabilized by him that they created a new danger, which we're still living with. May, Ian McGilchrist on the left brain and right brain distinction. There. <laughs> um, is that, that's the, where it all went wrong then, is it? I mean, it, it feels like even in just the past five years, the world is more dogmatic, oh, yes. more, as it were, left brain. It's accelerated. So do you, the chronology then, is it just gradually more and more left-brained and then more and more so? Or are there particular points and are we in one at the moment where it's suddenly speed, speeded up? Well, I mean, how long have we got? But I mean, put it very simply, there have been movements back and forward. So there have been corrections at various times. And after the Enlightenment came Romanticism, which... And the name romantic sort of seems to mean that it's not serious or important. But in fact, the thinking and the art that came out of it is very great indeed. And so there was a correction. But then the power of the Industrial Revolution um, led to this machine-like way of thinking about living things. And we've never really lost that. 
And although there are great artists in modernism and postmodernism, it's interesting that ways of seeing the world that normally would only happen to somebody who had a, an injury in the right hemisphere start to be represented in the visual arts in the 20th century. I mean, it's just a fact. I'm not saying it's all rubbish. I'm just saying things that we would not normally experience unless we were not using our right hemisphere start to be visualized. And, and there's a wonderful book called Madness and Modernism about this topic, how 20 or 30 types of things you find in schizophrenia are now happening and are being portrayed in our culture. And it's not that we've all got schizophrenia. Of course we haven't. But what I think it is, is we're all neglecting the right hemisphere. And if you like, schizophrenia is a case in which the left hemisphere has gone into overdrive and the right hemisphere has been wound down or is not really being listened to. And this leads to delusions and hallucinations. I think we are now in a world which is fully deluded. We're in a fully deluded world. <laughs> I've been in it for years. May, RFK Jr. on his presidential run. The rot, I guess, in your sense of things goes deep and wide. We're talking about big swathes of the government as well as the media heads of corporations. It almost feels a little bit like a revolution when you talk about it, because there must be many, many thousands of people who are in positions of power who you would want out. Do you think of it as a revolution? I think of it as a, yeah, like we need a revolution. I would say that, but a peaceful revolution. And a revolution that, um, you know, that uh, brings us back to our, the values that have been robbed from us you know, over the past 40 years systematically through, you know, uh, that I watched happen. I mean, I was watching what happened in 1980. And we had a functioning government there, and we were in the middle of the great prosperity, and we had, you know, most Americans trusted the government, and, um, and we all trusted the media. And today, 22% of people, Americans, trust their government, 22% trust the media. And the reason we have all this blizzard of misinformation, what the, is called misinformation, is because people are looking for other sources of information that they can actually trust because the, the people who are supposed to be giving us good information are not. It's, it's, it's spin, it's propaganda, it's uh, government orchestrated and, uh, and people know it. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows we were lied to about COVID. Everybody knows we were lied to about Vietnam. Everybody knows we were lied to about Iraq. Weapons of mass destruction. You know, it's not this... My opinion about these agencies is not happening in a vacuum. Everybody knows that pharma lied to us about opioids and about Vioxx. You know, I mean, I, these are not like things that are conspiracy theories that, you know, Robert Kennedy is crazy because he thinks a, a corrupted FDA, you know, helped uh, the pharmaceutical companies uh, create the opioid crisis. This is, this is a fact that, it, that is well-known, well-documented, and that happened. And the question is, how are we going to stop it from happening again? And the answer to that is, we got to start by telling the truth about it. I mean, who knows? RFK, another figure who might play a, a, a huge outsized role in the coming year, um, considering how he's polling, he looks like he might become some sort of a sideline kingmaker in the American election, which would be an extraordinary be. turn of events. We're hoping to talk to him in January. I mean, he's, if you think about the paradoxes of the current political climate, he is the perfect example of it. You, you cannot find someone more elite 
more establishment than Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He's the son of a presidential candidate, nephew of the president, grew up in Hyannis Port, and they call it Camelot, the, the circle around JFK. It's a real iconic American dynasty, and yet he's a complete outsider. Even his own family are not supporting him. They find what he says about vaccines and other topics completely unacceptable. So, yeah, his influence on 2024 could be big. May, Kathleen Stock on her Oxford Union address. They're unhappy. I think that's the thing. It's hard to stay very cross with them, um, with some exceptions. (laughs) But it's hard to stay angry with a bunch of very anxious, neurotic, um, self-absorbed teenagers and young 20-somethings who, you know, I think are deeply unhappy. Those ones in particular, I mean, they're going to say they're not. You know, this is the sort of thing that really annoys them. They're going to, like, march around saying, no, we're very joyful. Look, look at our joy. (laughs) There's this new thing where they have to exhibit joy at every protest, so they have to dance really angrily but joyfully, you know. (laughs) And there's conga lines that are joyful. Um, But it doesn't look very joyful to me. It really doesn't look very joyful to me. And I don't think they are. I think they're really, really anxious. And so I just don't... And that is no doubt a result of the knock on the downstream effects of technology and the university system, which is not really fostering, or despite all the talk that goes into it, it's not really fostering communities. Like I was always struck by the fact that a lot of my students didn't really know that many other students. And I'd say, where are your friends? Then, oh, I didn't really make any, you know. Um, so they're not having these amazing experiences that an older generation might have had, formative experiences. Not all of them. Some of them are, clearly, but not all of them. So they're lonely and they're looking for friends and they're looking for purpose and meaning. And that's all fine. Yeah, I can forgive them that. It's the, it's the lecturers that I really get annoyed with. You were at university more recently than me. Is that true? <laughs> Is everyone having a miserable time? No, I, I, I had a very nice time at university, but I think maybe I was there just at the right time, just before all this stuff hit. And I went to a very old university and so... Uh, maybe it was slightly immune to it. But Kathleen there is kind of, with her trademark stoicism, um, forgiving and forgetting the the young who attacked her outside the gates of the Oxford Union and is actually pointing the finger, I think rightly so, at the cowardly tutors who stand by and should really be the adults in the room, but instead are kind of hiding... Behind, use, well, they're using their young students as a human shield um, to keep their cushy academic job. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. June, Paul Kings North on resisting the machine. The people who are usually called indigenous people or tribal people or hill tribes or, or, or gypsies or the sort of people around the edges whose civilization tends to see as the, the undeveloped people who haven't yet been brought into the glories of, of, of machine culture are in many cases actually people who've deliberately forged lives designed to escape the reaches of the state, which wants to tax them and put them into the army and take their labor or turn them into slaves. Uh, and it's quite a convincing picture he paints. Um, and he has this one particular story he tells, which I think is about China and how the Chinese state was trying to bring a, a people called the Li into the reach of the state. They wanted to, to sort of corral them and and they found it very difficult. There, many of the Li were tribes in the hills and they were living in caves and you just couldn't get anywhere near them. So the, they regarded them as barbarians. But there were some Li who lived in the towns and in the cities and within the civilization's walls. Um, and so they referred to these, these people who lived out in the hills as, as the, the raw Li, the raw barbarians. They couldn't get hold of them. But the ones in the cities, the ones living in the civilization, were the cooked Li, the cooked barbarians. But they didn't really trust the cooked barbarians either because they, they, they suspected them of secretly collaborating with the raw ones. So they, outwardly they looked very respectable and they lived within the city, city walls and they did all the things they were supposed to do. But under the surface, um, they were never quite trusted by the state because under the surface they were still barbarians. And so I wrote an essay about this and uh, I thought it's, it's quite interesting to see if you want to resist the machine, if you want to live differently, if you want to push against the direction of travel, to think about what kind of barbarian you are. Most of us can't be raw barbarians in this world if we'd want to be. But we can be cooked barbarians of different, of different stripes, of different levels, actually. One day we might be forced to become raw barbarians if we refuse our, our uh, digital currencies or our neural link in the brain or whatever it is that's coming. Um, but at the moment, being a cooked barbarian is not a bad aim. I love that idea. Me too. The cooked barbarians. I think I'm a cooked barbarian. Are th- you a cooked barbarian? I think you might be like a medium rare barbarian. I, I think Paul's more of a rare barbarian. He's, he's closer, closer to a raw barbarian. Yeah. He's kind of bloody barbarian. But it's such a great idea that actually, and also very helpful for people who are trying to work out how to exist in a world where they feel suspicious or they don't feel comfortable with all of the tenets, to be a cooked barbarian where you can sort of resist privately. And I kind of think what we're trying to do at Unheard in a way is be attached enough to the mainstream currents. Yeah, we're right in the middle of Westminster. We're, we're out, right in the Outsiders inside, which is a nice position. Sort of listening to the alternative voices at the same time. Yeah, I think so. And perhaps some of our subscribers are kind of well-done barbarians and we can lure them into the rarer portions of barbarianism. And some may be completely raw and they need a bit of cooking. <laughs> which one are you? <laughs> Tell us that. <laughs> Right on a postcard. (laughs) June, Richard Dawkins on his COVID record. Let's put a couple of tweets that you did during the uh, pandemic on the screen. Um, You said, some faith heads have a ritual of handling snakes, believing faith will protect them. When they're bitten, they deserve it. They alone suffer. Vaccine refusal is different. Others are endangered. It's as though their faith told them to release rattlesnakes in supermarkets. This was April 6th, 2021. That kind of tone, which was very common among people of influence such as you, which was really 
vilifying people who were hesitant about taking the vaccine, in retrospect, seems too much, doesn't it? Because maybe they were more right than we realized. Do you you take that back? Um, Well, I've become aware that the the, the conventional wisdom about vaccination, which is that it's a matter of um, altruism, uh, because it's it's it, it's not simply a matter of saying it, it is my private business whether I'm vaccinated or not, um, and in and in the case of um, the, the measles vaccine, for example, um, it really is a matter of altruism because um, if you if you don't get vaccinated, then then you are part of the problem if if there's a measles epidemic. And um, I thought that that would be the case with COVID, and I, it, it's now not entirely clear that that, that that was right. And so to that extent, I would take that back, yes. Do you now have a view on lockdowns, since, we, since we're doing a little uh, tour of the COVID era? No, I don't, I don't have a view. I'm, I'm not... I, mean, I should say, I'm, as a half-Swedish person, we've paid a lot of attention to it, and it, it, you talk about double-blind trials and yes. scientific process. The fact that Sweden has emerged from the longer period with the lowest excess death count of all of the European countries seems to be a quite an important scientific point of evidence that possibly lockdowns were not necessary. That, could be, that could be true. And, and um, as uh, John Maynard Keynes has said to have said, um, when, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? And, and so, yes, it, it, is it, it, there was a need for rapid decisions. The evidence was not yet in, and, and mistakes may have been made. That interview caused a bit of a fandango, to say the least. Yeah, I was a bit upset about that. We had a bit of a bust-up, Richard and I, afterwards. We got on so well and had a really interesting conversation. And then I said something on Twitter that he thought was misrepresenting his point of view. I said that in this interview, Dawkins concedes, never a verb that public intellectuals like to be attached Especially to their name, not the new atheist. that... Religious feeling is good for human flourishing, mm. uh, which I do think he did say because we had this whole in-depth discussion around the Darwinian process, and he describes himself as an ultra-Darwinian, which is a, apparently quite a, a rare subset of sort of biologists or evolutionary biologists who believe that almost everything about us has been selected into being. Mm-hmm. So there are no accidents. If it's there, the statistics of evolution and natural selection mean that almost every detail about us is there for a purpose. And you can observe that religious feeling is almost universal across the generations and across the ethnicities. So why is it there unless it's there for a purpose? That's why I put back to the professor. He sort of agreed with it, but he said it doesn't mean it's true. It could be there for a purpose, i.e. it could be kind of useful. For example, it could be useful in helping children be gullible and obey their parents which is useful in a tribe. Um, anyway, we, we had this disagreement. I put it on Twitter. He didn't like it, and it was a real shame. So, Richard, if you're watching, come back on the show and let's be friends again. July, Tom Holland on the end of the Roman Empire. Does it feel to you like we're on the downslope of a civilization? I, I think we are going through a process of moral, ethical change that is more analogous to the Reformation than to anything you can get in Roman history. But I think that that Rome provides us with a kind of enduring model. You know, we are shadowed by the sense that if you have a moment in the sun, if you have greatness, then you are doomed as an empire to decline and fall. 
because the, the, the collapse is so total. The contrast is with China, which is an equally great empire in this period, you know, getting very kind of rich at the far, far end of Eurasia. Um, and of course, over, over the centuries, China, as Reim does, will succumb to barbarians. Barbarians will become emperors. The Chinese empire will disintegrate, be reconstituted, disintegrate, be reconstituted, have kind of barbarians rule it and so on. And yet, in a sense, always remain China. The sense that there is a kind of an entity called China endures. We do not, in the modern world, in the West, have a sense of, of there being, you know, Romania, a, a land of the Romans, the land of, of, of Rome, because that has long gone. And so I think that for us, probably far more than for, for, for people in China, the sense that golden ages are delusory and that the greatest empire is merely a provocation and that it will succumb and be destroyed. It's kind of bred of a combination of the Book of Revelation and Gibbon's decline and fall. And it's kind of fused to give us this sense that you can't be great in the long run. It will collapse. And the words of a simpleton, I suppose, the, the higher they climb, the harder they fall. And um, he's, I suppose, questioning whether Western nations have enough of an identity to recognize themselves after a kind of revolutionary moment happens. But also they're haunted by the brevity of earlier civilizations. That mm. they don't there's no sense of that civilizations can last. No. And that's why the, the question at the moment is about the American Empire. And I was kind of nudging him in that direction. He was very elegantly avoiding falling into my trap, but there, there is no comparison, according to Tom Holland, between the American Empire and the Roman Empire. He did not say the neat, pat conclusion, which is, ah, yes, you know, the American Empire is headed the way of the Roman Empire. It won't be long now before the barbarians are at the gates and the whole thing uh, disappears. But instead, he made that much more interesting point, which is that the, the, the memory, the historical memory of the disappearance of the Roman Empire sort of haunts us all uh, in some distant way and it means that we're, we're obsessed with the fact that big empires just are probably not going to last including our own july vandana shiva on the farmers uprisings modernity and modernism has devastated the world it begins with the assumption that nature is dead we're going to improve her we'll civilize the primitive people that's modernity colonialism is modernity the reason it doesn't hang together is because something that says we will trample on nature, can't be the savior of nature. That's why techno-fix won't work. Yeah? Because ecology is about taking all costs into account and all relationships into account. So the reason it's wrong to try and make this new line, particularly a line where the corporate world has worked out. You know, I, I have had to work through all the stages of transformation in my country. When I watched what happened in Punjab, I wrote a book on the violence of the Green Revolution. Then the same companies who made chemicals, I call them the poison cartel, came up with genetic engineering and said, now we will own the seed. And I was at a meeting where they were laying this out in 87. And that's when I started to save seeds. Uh, and now we've got this assumption that the future is farming without farmers. Mr. Gates has thought this stage through because Silicon Valley is guiding the next stage. 
both in terms of digital agriculture as well as in terms of lab food. Bandana Shiva there talking about farmers uprising and the revolution that happened in India that she was a big part of. And there's it, been a lot of that in 2023. It has as been well. a theme of 23. The year. It has been the year of the revolting farmer. Um, and we've seen in the streets of uh, the Netherlands and Canada, farmers become Spain, Germany, far more uh, prominent in the political discourse than they've ever been before. It does seem to have waned in the last few months, but maybe that's something to look out for in 24, the, the role, mm. outsized role of the farmer. Also how controversial and political it is. I mean, we've got a big debate coming up in January about rewilding uh, two of the most famous proponents and opponents of rewilding are going to talk it out here in the club. This stuff people care hugely deeply about. Um, and Vandana Shiva is also highly controversial now because she's been expressed reservations about vaccines. She doesn't like Bill Gates. Tick, tick, she's considered a problematic person whilst she has a lot of interesting things to say. August, Wolfgang Munchau on German politics. They are seeing the impacts of that policy on energy prices, on dividing the world economy, on bringing on some kind of new Cold War situation with Russia and China, and they don't think it's worth it as voters, and they choose to oppose it. No, no, absolutely. That's exactly the reason. I mean, they, they, they are making the connection between the support of Ukraine and the fact that, you know, they know that Germany is dependent on China and Japan on Russia. And they see that this is a policy or a change in the world environment that is not in Germany's favor. Um, so you know, voters are not entirely stupid. You know, when they when they vote for the AfD and or when they vote for parties that are that are that are opposing this because they 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 may be dependent on that old structure or they may have known nothing else. So there is a a sense that this is now interrupted and and it is interrupted due to politics and the government is doing something unreasonable by supporting. Right. Uh, Ukraine. So there is a, a, an electorate for that. and so the there's AfD, a rationale there, there's whether the, you agree with it or not. The AfD captures a lot of that, but there may be now a party on the left by a very sort of maverick you know, politician who is left or who is on the verge of leaving the left party, who may be, who may be forming a party uh, of the left. And that party is also on, on opinion polls has a potential of 20% of the, of the electorate. So Wolfgang Munchau, incredibly like an oracle. Almost. He got it exactly right, because he was saying there would be a new political party in Germany splitting off from the left, which was left, but which was against immigration, against the Ukraine war, and heterodox in a number of other ways. And that's exactly what happened. A woman called Sarah Wagenknecht launched it. It hasn't taken over the political scene yet, but I think we, we count that as prediction of the year to Wolfgang. September, on the streets of San Francisco. And then fuck the police, and I'll say it. Fuck the police, because it's a police station right there, and y'all don't do nothing. I can go down there. I got drugs on me right now. I can go down there and sell drugs in front of the police station. That don't even make no sense. Like, it's like I'm trying to go to jail. No, they don't care. So that's the one thing. Fuck the police. A clip from San Francisco there, where we were in the summer. We have just released it as a premium episode. So if you are not a subscriber to Unheard, become one so you can watch the full documentary. It's uh, quite uh, revealing, I think, of what's exactly happened over there in that city and what might become the fate of many cities across not just the US, but the entire West, if things go as they seem to be going. 
And that guy in particular that we showed the clip from was just so symptomatic of that interesting thing that we both observed where you've got people on the streets, often them, they are often users of drugs, people who you might think would celebrate an ultra-liberal city policy, complaining about it. It was, i got to say, I did not expect that. So here he, there he was saying he wanted the police to be stronger. He was like, I've got drugs on me right now. They should be arresting me. Yeah, the, it's ridiculous that I'm not being arrested. The biggest critics of loose drug policy on the streets of the Tenderloin were the drug users and drug dealers, which was a very odd thing to encounter once we got there. But I think... Just shows how far down the rabbit hole that policy has got. September. John Gray on the age of absurdity. Talking to Freddie earlier on, and we were talking about an earlier conversation we had when we concluded, he and I, um, that we were in an age of tragedy, that we'd entered an age of political tragedy. So I said to, I'm not so sure about that anymore. I think we've advanced further than tragedy. We're entering an age of absurdity. <laughs> and I think uh, the, the, uh, an example of that would be that German climate policy, which of course Germany, as we know, is incomparably more adult, more advanced, more, more modern, and in every way superior to uh, bungling uh, Britain but, and, and, and other countries. But in Germany, the result of their uh, closing down of nuclear and um, uh, going for renewables has been a reliance, an increased reliance, on the dirtiest kind of coal. Well, that is tragic, but it's even more than tragic. It's completely absurd. And the world is advancing rapidly, I think, Western society particularly, into utter absurdity. I mean, you can't argue with that, can you? No, the age of absurdity now coined in the club by John Gray feels perhaps the most apt description of 2023. Yeah, we found the moniker. Let's have a look at the next one. October, Yanis Varoufakis on techno-feudalism. The market's gone. It's finished. It's kaput. Today, Alexa sits on your desk. You train it to train you to train it, to train you, to train it, to know you really very well. So when Amazon recommends a book for me, or any, any, any item, a bicycle, you know, when Spotify recommends music to me, it's spot on. I want what it says I want. It knows me, right? And this is not the market. This is what Hayek deplored. A human construction that replaces the market. That is an algorithm that belongs to Jeff Bezos that knows me, knows what I want. And, Freddie, what is absolutely mind-boggling is that not only does it have the capacity to impress upon me what I should buy and to be right, and also help shape my preferences after a while in my interaction with Alexa. It shapes me, I shape its view of me, and it shapes me. But it actually sells me the stuff directly, bypassing every market. Because an Amazon.com is a trading platform, it's not a market. It's not a market that Adam Smith imagined. It is not a market that Hayek imagined. It bypasses the market. Now, Amazon does not produce the binoculars, the music, the, the book. Huh? What happens is that it is a conduit where some capitalist who produces the binoculars, the bicycle, the book, whatever, huh, through Amazon reaches me Jeff Bezos charges that capitalist 40% of the price that I pay. That is a humongous rent. I call it cloud rent. Uh, he is always interesting, Yanis, isn't he? He's, he's so full of contradictions and paradoxes. 
and yet he's so eloquent and he's always stimulating. I mean, that in a way is a, is a right-wing critique of the current state of capitalism. He's saying that it's not proper capitalism. It's not a proper market. Mm. It's rentier capitalism. It's crony capitalism where people are collecting rents for work they're not doing. Mm. So that kind of critique is common on the right as well. And here is a, a firebrand of the left. And yet when you move him onto issues such as immigration, he snaps into much more orthodox uh, left points of view. He will then defend high levels of immigration. He thinks borders are a catastrophe. And in fact, we can show another clip from that Yanis, which went quite viral, where he started talking about Suella Braverman and got uncharacteristically forthright. Let's have a look. October, Yanis Varoufakis on Suella Braverman. The UK is currently having a, a, a lot of debate about immigration. You shouldn't be having this debate. It is a misanthropic, stupid debate. And you have a minister who should have been expelled from this country for having these ideas. She, I mean, she even challenged the, the you know, the U United Nations Charter on Refugees. I mean, this is, this is, this is... A, well, she, su she suggested it might have been an outdated, idiot. an outdated uh, legal mechanism to she resolve that dangerous problem. and dangerous, poor excuse of human nature. But the, people the people who are Be very anxious, ashamed of her. But the people who are anxious about this issue are, are the people you are trying to look after. Sure. They are people who... My are, job is not, well, no, it's not you, but, to pander to anxieties that um, are absolutely false consciousness examples. Look, Freddie, we Europeans exported hordes, hordes of people. We emigrated to the four corners of the universe, of the universe, of the planet. Huh? We populated the Earth from Latin America to North America to Asia to Africa, you know, millions, usually armed as well, right, <laughs> as imperialists. Mm -hmm. uh, we had no qualms about that for a thousand years. All that has happened is that we're getting old. Demographically, we are aging. So, you know, migratory flows have reversed. We need migrants. The more the merrier. That caused quite a storm on social media, and uh, for, for good reason. I think Yanis there was unusually uh, aggressive and extremely exercised in a way that I haven't seen him in many interviews. A lot of people on social media were saying, well, you can't be against borders, and yet you want to evict the Home Secretary from the country, because if there were no borders, there would be nothing to evict her out of. That was the sort of gotcha on that particular question. He actually apologised on social media and, you know, it was yet another one of these little moments, but a great, great conversation with him. October, Jonathan Sumption on the decline of the United States. I don't think that the United States will decline in absolute terms, but I think it's pretty well clear that it will decline in, in its relative position in the world. The implications of that for jobs that aren't at the, uh, at the cutting edge of technology are really very serious. Uh, and I don't think that the Americans are likely to be very good at managing it. A much more flexible political constitution such as ours has managed to accommodate uh, a significant relative decline since the Second World War rather successfully. I am concerned that Trump and Trump's doings and followers is not simply uh, an incident related to this particularly extraordinary individual, but is a symptom of a much broader malaise in the United States associated with capricious patterns of inequality, with the decline of traditional skills, 
and with the exportation of jobs, which is the inevitable result of the decline of traditional skills. Um, so that I, I, do, I am not optimistic about the future of the United States. A rather bucket-like glass of wine taking centre stage there in Jonathan Sumption's event, but a, a great point nonetheless. He reaches a kind of systemic conclusion about the mm. faults of America, and one that it seems we might be too far gone from to come back on. You've got to also credit Jonathan Sumption for the way he talks. I've never interviewed anyone who speaks in such perfect full sentences as Lord Sumption. I mean, he spent his whole life as a senior judge, dictating judges' verdicts, literally, and you can tell because he will start a sentence and open kind of three sub-clauses instantly, and you know that he knows how each of them are gonna resolve five minutes later when the sentence concludes, and they always resolve in a pithy and witty way. It's an amazing thing to witness. In fact, everyone there was just throwing questions at him on all sorts of topics, like a kind of, almost like a bot that could just give a perfect answer to any question. It was an amazing thing to witness. If you haven't seen the Jonathan Sumption video, go and check it out. November, Ayan Hasyali on her Christian conversion. The other thing about atheism is it's a negative concept. It is it's basically a declaration saying, I don't believe that there is evidence that an entity called God exists. Other than that, it's nothing else. It's an assumption that if people conclude that, we're going to have all individuals you know, united around reason and enlightenment and knowledge and tolerance and moderation, but that's not how it turned out to be. <laughs> A shocking revelation, though, from Ayan, I think, given the context of the last 20 years of her life, that where she thought a gap would be filled where we took away religion with meaning and purpose, in fact, no meaning and purpose came forward and we were left with something more akin to a, a void of meaning. Mm. And I think that moment in the club, not only her speaking about her own personal experience and her own kind of conversion, but a more general sense in the room of people coming together and agreeing that perhaps the new atheist movement that had so much promise at the time had failed to live up to the expectations of many of its uh, most strident proponents. Ayan is, is, is on the Wikipedia page for the New Atheism Movement, right up there with Dawkins and, and the rest of them. And for her to now reject it was really very consequential. That was probably one of the moments of the year for us. It, that the article she wrote for Unheard where she explained the rationale for her conversion has been one of the most read ever articles uh, on Unheard. And it really made waves around the world and she was attacked for it. Uh, a lot of the time by her colleagues from within the atheism movement who obviously felt that she had apostasied. You know, it's not supposed to be a faith, but they obviously, some of the strength that you would normally associate with someone breaking with a faith was directed at her. And it's become one of the most talked about moments of the year. As someone who's got used to being an exile though, she handles it with such grace and dignity. So if there was anyone who was going to exile themselves from yet another mm. herd, I am probably the person to do it. And she did it there with the laugh. December. John Mearsheimer on the two-state solution. There's not going to be a two-state solution. What the Israelis are determined to do is create a greater Israel. And that greater Israel includes Gaza, the West Bank, and what we used to call Green Line Israel. Israel as it existed before the 1967 war. And the problem that the Israelis face is that there are approximately 7.3 million Israeli Jews in Greater Israel. 
and there are approximately 7.3 million uh, Palestinians inside of greater Israel. And that creates huge problems for Israel um, because they can't have a meaningful democracy when there are probably uh, slightly more Palestinians than Israeli Jews. And uh, they're unwilling, the Israeli government is unwilling to go to a two-state solution, regardless of what happened on October 7th. But certainly after October 7th, that's not going to happen. So the end result so, But just the, to confirm then, do, do, I know the current Netanyahu government is not in favor of that, but you don't think it's realistic anyway, a two-state solution. So if, if you're Israel, you wouldn't advise pursuing a two-state solution because you don't think it's feasible because of the, the nature of the antipathy that people in Gaza and the West Bank feel towards Israelis. Is that your position then? I have long been a proponent of a two-state solution. But I have long argued that it was no longer a viable alternative. Yeah, I got in trouble for that one. Lots of people in the comments upset with me. But that's part of the idea that whatever people are talking about when they're putting forward their arguments, I do think it is our job to push back slightly, not in an annoying gotcha BBC Channel 4 New York Times way where you're trying to kind of make them out to be villains, but in a sincere way to try and probe the perimeters, the outlines of their arguments, see at what point it ceases to work, what points they would concede to try and understand their position more fully. And if I were interviewing Douglas Murray, as I might be soon, I would take the opposite view on Israel. And I think that's the right thing to do. John Mearsham has become a realist celebrity. He is someone who's become infamous amongst certain political groups for being the person who spoke out against uh, a war in Ukraine, effectively saying that American involvement was a disaster in that. And again, here we see him taking a kind of anti-Western position. I think it's only right to, uh, you know, probe him a little on exactly how those two conflicts match up. And by the way, up. he doesn't mind. He and likes I've it. I've exchanged very friendly <laughs> emails afterwards. He will come back on the show and he thinks it's an opportunity to put forward his arguments better with a little bit of opposition. So if you're looking for a channel that just uh, applauds and claps along whenever a public intellectual is making their case, don't come to Unheard in 2024. But we will do our best to carry on doing what I think we try to do well, which is to, to probe and to try and find out what, what the strengths and the weaknesses are of what people are saying. Let's have a look for a bit of a lighter note at our last clip of the year. October. Graham Linehan on mob mentality and the jester. From what I can see, a lot of the time, the role of the jester was to represent the common man to the king. Yeah. So the king would go, okay, what's, what are they making fun of me? Why are they making fun of me? Should I, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a valuable service to a king. Well, but it stops the, tyranny. Yes. Because there's someone who's willing to say there's someone to who's, the king. There's someone who's risking their lives exactly. every day by telling the king exactly what, what they think. But when the mob is in power, then... There's no single figure to speak to. You, you're suddenly not allowed to say anything because everyone's like, well, it's going to be a bit of a that's going to be a bit offensive if you yeah. start saying because my friend over there, he's, uh, you know what I mean. And it's like the, the, suddenly you get a self-consciousness that means that possibly one of the most integral figures in in human history, the jester. Yes. Can't do his job. It has been an amazing year. Thank you so much to everyone who has been tuning in and with us on this up and down intellectual journey of 2023. 
I have no doubt that 2024 is going to be equally, if not more, stimulating and challenging, maybe worrying, maybe frightening. We've got two elections, one in the UK and one in the US that you might have heard about. So by the time we do a Christmas roundup in 2024, December, the world could look very different. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.